thanks very much for inviting me. Uh, as Sarah said, I'm going to be talking today about one of my research projects. It's about the credibility of international commitments. Um, this project addresses what I take to be a central question in the field of international relations. That is, what uh, makes international commitments credible? We know that leaders make threats and promises in their relations with other leaders uh, every day. Uh, and yet, it's not obvious in the absence of a world government to enforce these commitments uh, why we should take foreign leaders at their word. What I'm trying to do in this project is uh, study a few mechanisms that have been hypothesized in the literature to affect the credibility of international commitments. Uh, one of those mechanisms is what I call the publicity mechanism. Uh, the idea here is that a leader can enhance the credibility of international commitments by making not only announcing the commitment to its foreign party, uh, but also by announcing that commitment before a domestic audience that could hold the leader accountable for making the commitment and not following through. In the international relations literature, the idea that a leader might incur domestic political costs for not following through on an international commitment is referred to as domestic audience costs. A second mechanism that I'm examining in this project is uh, the legalization mechanism. Here, the idea is that leaders could enhance the credibility of their commitments by embedding them in treaties or other international legal instruments as opposed to simply conveying them orally to the other side. And in the interest of time, um, I'm actually only going to focus on the second one, which was the paper that was distributed, though I'd be happy to talk about uh, my research on uh, publicity uh, in the question and answers if, uh, if you'd like. So I'll be focusing on the legalization mechanism today, uh, asking uh, whether legalization increases the credibility of commitments, and if so, what might be the mechanisms that would be responsible for this uh, credibility-enhancing effect. Before I get into the details, though, let me say just a little bit about the, the broader project, uh, how it relates to some of my previous work and what's different um, about this project than some of my earlier work. So this project builds upon uh, two other projects that I recently uh, completed, uh, one of which uh, is a book about the role of reputation and in international cooperation. Uh, the book is called Reputation and in International Cooperation, Sovereign Debt Across Three Centuries. In that book, I develop a theory about how reputations form in international capital markets and how they affect the incentives of lenders uh, and borrowers. Uh, the work about legalization is most closely connected with uh, a series of papers that I recently published with Judy Goldstein and Doug Rivers uh, about uh, the law and international trade. The papers about the effects of the GATT, the World Trade Organization, the generalized system of preferences, and other trade agreements on trade flows. So this project builds upon some of my earlier work, uh, and yet it's a new departure in three ways uh, that I wanted to highlight. Uh, one is that uh, I'm using a new method, new for me and relatively new um, uh, for the field of international relations, with the exception of work that uh, Rick has done uh, involving experiments. Here, I'm embedding experiments uh, in interviews uh, with voters and policymakers and using those experiments to gain new insight into the formation of credibility in international relations. So this method is a complement to the use of observational data to study these kinds of problems. Uh, a second way in which this uh, is a new departure for me is that it represents a broadening of the substance of my uh, research. Uh, in previous work, I'd focus mainly on credibility in the areas of international finance and trade. Uh, you'll see that uh, some of the work I'm talking about today also applies to international military affairs. And in a parallel project, I'm using a similar experimental method to study uh, the political economy of elections. And um, finally, uh, it's an aim of mine in this project to try to deepen the micro-foundations of our international relations theories 
most of my previous work and work that others have done about uh, credibility has involved aggregate level data. Uh, a goal here is to use these experiments embedded in interviews uh, to get individual level data about the effects of publicity and legalization on the credibility of international commitments. All right, so um, this, uh, as Sarah mentioned, this uh, project is supported by a five-year grant, a career grant from the National Science Foundation. I'm in the second year of the grant now, so this is a good opportunity for me to get feedback from you, and uh, hopefully I can make a good use of the money for the remaining years of the grant with your suggestions. So um, let me uh, just uh, overview what I want to talk about today on the effects of international law by um, telling you what the findings are, and then I'll try to uh, provide some evidence to, to support these. What am I finding in research about the relationship between legalization and credibility? Um, first, I'm finding through a set of experiments that treaties do have a transformative effect on both uh, preferences uh, and beliefs, policy preferences, meaning what uh, leaders and voters want their country to do in international relations, and beliefs, by which I mean expectations about the way that other countries are likely to behave in international relations. I'm finding the treaties exert a strong effect on both voters and policymakers, uh, but the caveat here, as you'll see, is that these effects are additive or marginal rather than absolute. There are many conditions under which both voters and policymakers would be willing to override international law for the sake of other uh, moral and material objectives. I'm further finding, and this is uh, more speculative than the, than the first conclusion, uh, that there are at least two mechanisms that are contributing to these legalization effects. Um, one effect is that uh, treaties... Uh, by being both public and legal, uh, raise the reputational cost of reneging on a commitment. Uh, and a second mechanism is that uh, some treaties uh, empower domestic courts uh, to help in the enforcement of these international commitments. Uh, there may be other mechanisms at work uh, as well, but I'm finding uh, at least some evidence for each of these two uh, mechanisms in the experiments that I've been doing. Okay, so a roadmap uh, for the rest of today's presentation. I'll uh, spend uh, the bulk of the time talking about uh, my work on uh, trying to document the effects of international law through experiments, uh, international law's effect on preferences and expectations. Uh, and then toward the end of the presentation, I'll present uh, what evidence I do have about uh, mechanisms with an emphasis on the reputational channel and the uh, domestic courts channel that I described just a minute ago. All right. Um, in the international relations literature, there are basically two perspectives about the two polar perspectives about the effects uh, of treaties. Uh, there are the legalists who contend that treaties are profoundly consequential in international relations, that when a country takes a commitment and embeds it in international law, that embedding that commitment in law can change the country's preferences, making the leaders more reluctant to do uh, a particular course of action that would be forbidden by the, the treaty. Uh, and that uh, they also change beliefs, expectations about the way that other countries are likely to behave in international relations. So that's the legalist perspective, and it's to be contrasted with the skeptical perspective, which contends that uh, treaties have little constraining effect in international relations, that uh, countries may enter into these treaties, but without a world government to enforce them, the treaties are nothing more than simply scraps of paper. Uh, most treaties have exit provisions that allow countries to withdraw from them after giving three or six months' notice. Uh, and in the absence of a world government, even uh, a violation of the treaty might not be punished. So the skeptics contend that it makes little difference whether countries embed their commitments in treaties or not, that uh, these treaties shouldn't have a constraining effect on the country's behavior and therefore should also not have much of an effect on expectations about the way that countries will behave. Um, these are, of course, important questions in international relations, but there have been some severe roadblocks to empirical research about the effects of treaties or about legalization more generally. Uh, and I wanted to identify two here. Uh, one roadblock is uh, endogeneity. 
So the standard way that people have tried to study the effects of international agreements uh, is to choose a treaty, um, say an international environmental treaty or a human rights treaty, to make a list of countries that are signatories and a list of countries that are not signatories. Uh, and then to ask, say, whether the countries that are signatories to the environmental treaty protect the environment more than countries that are not signatories to the agreement. It might seem reasonable, except that the fact that uh, membership in these international organizations is uh, not random, it's voluntary, uh, and therefore might reflect a baseline propensity to protect the environment or to protect human rights, such that uh, the act of protecting the environment might not be a consequence uh, of the treaty itself, but the treaty might be instead a reflection of that underlying preference to, uh, to protect the environment or to respect human rights. Um, endogeneity also comes into play in a, bit, uh, in a, in a more complicated way in the sense that um, countries may enter into or exit treaties with anticipation uh, of treatment effects. So to the degree that treaties do have an impact on the way that countries behave, and that impact varies across countries, say based on whether the countries are democratic or non-democratic, or what type of domestic political system they have, then countries may decide to enter into or exit treaties based on their sensitivity uh, to uh, the constraining effect of the treaty itself. And that, too, would add endogeneity. Um, very difficult to overcome these endogeneity problems with observational data, which doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. And in fact, in some of my other research, I have. Uh, but we want to uh, supplement that with some type of a method that uh, cuts through this endogeneity problem. Uh, the other uh, roadblock to research is measurement. So that even if we could find a way to overcome these uh, endogeneity problems, what we're still lacking in the literature is direct individual level evidence uh, about the effect of treaties on preferences and beliefs. And it's my hope in this research that I'll be contributing that type of evidence as well. So those are some of the roadblocks to progress on these questions to date. Um, my solution uh, in uh, part of this research program is to study the effects of legalization by embedding experiments uh, in interviews. And uh, these are experiments of two types. So one type of experiment is a between-subject experiment. And this is the focus of the paper that was distributed for this talk. Um, the idea in this between-subject experiment is that we take uh, the relevant audience, which could be voters, could be policymakers, uh, and describe to them a foreign policy situation. Uh, half of the sample is told about the situ a situation in which an international legal commitment doesn't exist. And the other half of the sample is told about exactly the same type of situation, except that there's an international treaty or other legal commitment at play. Both halves of the sample are then asked what their country should do or what they expect other countries in this type of a circumstance to do. And by comparing uh, the responses of these two groups, we can get a direct measure uh, of the effect of the treaty uh, on preferences and beliefs. A different way to go about this, and I'll present some evidence of this in the, in the talk uh, as well, is a within-subject experiment. So rather than splitting a sample of voters or policymakers into two groups, uh, we can look at reactions over time by first setting up a control condition and asking uh, these leaders or voters what they would do, and then exposing them to a, a legal treatment, information about legal commitments, and asking them then, uh, in a, based on the treatment, uh, what their, whether their views would change uh, or not. So that gives us a within-subject test of the same type of things that we're driving out with the between-subject design. Uh, the advantage of these two types of experimental designs are that they uh, provide us with a direct measure and an individual-level measure of, policy, of the effects of treaties on policy preferences and beliefs, while, and this is key here, avoiding the bias from non-random selection uh, that we would incur if uh, we took the standard strategy of enumerating a list of countries that were parties to these international agreements and actual politics. All right. Um, so I want to uh, spend a few minutes talking about uh, some experiments that I've been running about the effects of treaties on policy preferences. 
And then I'll turn to some experiments about the effects of treaties on expectations or beliefs. All right, so the ex one experiment uh, that's uh, described in the, in the paper that was circulated involves uh, the question of trade with the country of Burma or Myanmar. Uh, the subjects in this experiment were U.S. voters. Uh, a random sample of them uh, were asked to consider whether the United States should cut off trade with uh, uh, the country of Burma. They were all given a, a randomized set of pro and con arguments to help them contextualize whether this would be a good idea. Uh, they were told that if we cut off trade with Burma, that this might be a way of helping the human rights situation in Burma by putting pressure on the Burmese government. Uh, that it might help the U.S. economy by reducing uh, pressure from ch of cheap imports from abroad. And on the other side, it uh, might hurt the Burmese, it hurt the Burmese economy uh, and the people of Burma. And then the key to the experiment was whether uh, this action uh, would or would not be a violation of our treaty commitments or international legal commitments with respect to Burma. Uh, after having received this random assortment of pro and con arguments, uh, everyone uh, in the study was asked how good or a bad idea they thought it would be for the United States to prohibit trade with Burma. This uh, table, which I just go over very quickly, just uh, summarizes the configurations of arguments that were given to different treatment groups in the study. Um, the experiment was administered to a random sample of adults. So the first experiment they run of this, ran of this type was administered by Knowledge Networks in 2005. Uh, just recently, in October, uh, ran a follow-up experiment with a much larger sample of 5,800 people by a different polling firm, uh, Polymetrics. So I'll first describe the results from the initial study, uh, that's the one in the paper, and then talk about the follow-up study uh, that was run just a couple of months ago. Uh, I'll assert these things, that, uh, but I can document them later if you care to, that the samples were nationally representative and that the treatment groups were balanced, which means that um, I ran a series of parametric and non-parametric tests to make sure that uh, the groups that were given the international law treatment and the groups that were assigned to control, in which there wasn't an international law uh, at play, were similar in demographic characteristics that might affect their attitudes toward cutting off trade with Burma or other foreign policy issues. Um, fortunately, they were balanced, which means that uh, we don't need a fancy statistical model to analyze these data. All the analysis can be done with, uh, essentially, uh, cross-tabulation. Um, so the first finding from this uh, research is that international law uh, in this experiment uh, had a transformative effect on people's policy preferences. Uh, the table on the screen shows the percentage of people in the sample who disapproved of cutting off trade with Burma in the two main experimental conditions. Um, when they were told this would be a violation of our treaty commitments, our legal commitments, 44% of respondents disapproved of cutting off trade with Burma. Uh, whereas when no mention was made of our international legal commitments, only 27% disapproved of cutting off trade with Burma. Uh, the difference of 17 percentage points uh, between the treatment and the control group is what I'm calling here the absolute effect of international law. That international law was sufficiently powerful to change uh, the policy preferences of 17% of respondents uh, in this sample. Uh, the last line in the table here, relative risk, um, says that uh, disapproval of the embargo was 1.7 times larger, that's the disapproval multiplier, uh, when international law was at play than when it was not at play. Um, and I take this to be the first experimental evidence uh, of the effect of international law. It complements some work that uh, Rick has done a number of years earlier about the effect of norms uh, in international relations. Here we have uh, the first experimental evidence about treaty commitments uh, and their impact on foreign policy preferences. Yes, you had a question? Uh, would you explain what you mean by transform? That it, that it changed people, that people felt constrained um, with respect to cutting off trade with Burma because a treaty was at play. 
When a, treaty, when, a, when a treaty was present, people had systematically different attitudes about what their country should do in international relations than when a treaty was not present. Did change become transformative? Oh, well, it, it, <laughs> it, they're the same thing. Can you use the word change? Change. They change. It changed people's policy preferences. Yeah. Okay. Um, moreover, uh, as I mentioned before, people got a randomized assortment of pro and con arguments. So we can ask uh, whether this effect of international law depended on the configuration of other arguments that were presented to respondents. So some respondents were told on the pro side that it would be good to cut off trade with Burma because cutting off trade with Burma would be a way of pressuring Burma with respect to human rights, but they were not given any arguments about the economy. Uh, other people were uh, only told that this would be uh, uh, good for the U.S. economy without any mention of human rights. And uh, some percentage of the sample, the other third of the sample, were given both types of arguments. They were told that cutting off trade with Burma would be the way to help human rights and at the same time to protect the U.S. economy. Uh, we want to know, uh, with these different configurations of arguments, whether international law had an effect. It turns out that international law, the presence of treaties, changed people's preferences uh, in all three of these experimental conditions. So it had an effect not only uh, in the case of human rights and when the U.S. economy arguments were presented separately, but even in the face of a very powerful configuration of arguments where they were told that breaking international law would be good for both human rights and for the economy. Nonetheless, uh, in that type of a condition, uh, the presence of, um, of international law um, led to a 22 percentage point difference in people's attitudes about whether trade should be cut off uh, with Burma. So this is strong evidence that uh, even when there are both moral and material interests at stake, uh, people uh, are sensitive enough to international law that it can change the attitudes of some 22 percent uh, of, of the sample about what their country should pursue in foreign policy. Um, moreover, um, this effect was uh, evident throughout the population. If we, divide the pop, if, we do, if we divide the sample into different demographic groups, say liberals versus conservatives, Democrats versus Republicans, males versus females, educated versus more versus less educated people, high versus low income people, we find that there is a positive and significant effect uh, for all of those demographic groups uh, and not a very, at least with the sample of this size, not a very significant difference between liberals and conservatives or Democrats and Republicans, et cetera, in the way that they respond to these international law treatments. Uh, so that, too, is additional evidence of the robustness uh, of the effect uh, that was being detected in the experiment. Yes? Uh, any, uh, among these factors, level of education was taken as a factor or not? That was. That's uh, whether people had some college or no college. And we find here that the effect of international law was 19 percentage points among those with some college versus 15 percentage points uh, for those with, with no college. So the effect was a little bit larger in this uh, uh, sample for those who were highly educated. But this difference over here rounded five percentage point difference is not statistically significant at conventional levels. This is a 95% Bayesian credible interval around this five percentage point, point estimate. So it, the difference is, uh, our best guess is the difference is five percent, but it could be anywhere from negative 11 to plus 20. All right. Um, here's the caveat that I mentioned at the outset. Even though I'm finding strong evidence that international law uh, is changing uh, the policy preferences of a significant proportion of the sample, um, I'm also finding that for many people, interest in morality end up trumping the law. So remember I said before that when um, the policy would violate an international treaty, 44% of respondents thought it would be a bad idea to cut off trade with Burma. 
the flip side of that is that 56% of respondents nonetheless thought it would be a good idea to cut off trade with Burma, uh, even though it would be an illegal act. So a majority of people in the sample approved of, of an illegal embargo against Burma. Um, this study then is showing both the power of international law to change a significant proportion of people's attitudes, but also the limits uh, in the sense that there are lots of people who are willing to override international law for a higher cause. Okay. Uh, I want to describe now um, a series of follow-up studies that are not in the paper, uh, that are meant to reinforce uh, the findings in the paper. Uh, these are follow-up studies about the effect of the law on policy preferences. So um, this follow-up study is what I call a, a, it involves what I call substitution design rather than an addition design. So first let me just summarize, again, the, the initial design and how it contrasts with this follow-up study. The initial strategy was to create a control group that was given a certain configuration of, of pro and con arguments. Say, P1 and P2, two pro arguments for cutting off trade with Burma, and uh, a con argument for cutting off trade with Burma. To contrast that uh, with the treatment group that was given those same pro and con arguments and was also told that cutting off trade with Burma would be a violation of international law. Uh, the rationale for setting up a design like this is, I thought, uh, that treaties end up giving uh, political groups an extra argument that they can invoke uh, when making a claim for or against a particular foreign policy. So that's the motivation for setting up this addition design in which we add an argument uh, in the treatment group but don't have that argument in the, in the control group. The limitation of this type of a design is that we can't be sure uh, with this design, whether the treatment effect that we're observing is due to the presence of the law, or if instead it's simply due to the balance of pro and con arguments, with two con arguments in the treatment group versus only one con argument uh, in the pro group. So we want to design uh, a follow-up design that involves substitution of arguments rather than addition of arguments to see whether international law uh, holds, uh, the effect of international law can be detected when the number of con arguments is held constant. All right, so the revised design, uh, Substitution design involves setting up a control group in which there are two pro arguments and two con arguments, and then a treatment group that's given the two pro arguments and one of those con arguments, but the second con argument is replaced with an argument that this would be a violation of international law. Uh, the advantage of this design is that it holds the number of con arguments constant and allows us to find out whether international law would have an effect in, in, in these circumstances. The trick with this kind of a design is figuring out what's an appropriate set of C2s that could be replaced by international law in order to identify uh, the effect of the law. And I tried uh, four different uh, ways of going about uh, looking at C2. So one C2 uh, that I uh, used was a weak law argument. So the control group was told that this action, cutting off trade with Burma, might be a violation of international law whereas the treatment group was told that it would be a violation of international law. Any difference in policy attitudes that we find between treatment and control groups then would be a measure of uh, the uh, impact of moving along the legalization spectrum uh, from uncertain to certain violation of international law. A second type of C2 that we can look at is a redundant con argument, one that is uh, similar in spirit but different in language. Uh, so the con argument used here was that this would hurt the, uh, the Burmese economy. Uh, a redundant con argument would be an argument, say, that said that this would increase unemployment uh, in Burma. A weak con argument uh, could also be used and pitted against international law. I used what I thought to be a fairly weak con argument, that this would cause Burma to protest diplomatically against the United States. Um, and then it's interesting to see how international law would compare to a very strong uh, con argument. 
And uh, one argument I thought might be strong would be the idea that this might cause China to retaliate against the United States. So we can compare the effect of the law to each of these C2s and see whether the law still turns out to have a, a, a positive effect on people's preferences. Um, what I find in this follow-up study is that, uh, indeed, the effect of international law is not simply due to adding an argument. That we can still detect the effect of international law even when we hold the number of con arguments uh, constant. So the first thing I did in this study, which was conducted in October 2007, was to replicate the addition experiment from before. In that addition experiment, I find, interestingly, that the effect is a little bit smaller than it was in, in the first study. Here, uh, international law changed the uh, attitudes of 10% of respondents in the sample. Uh, but the key to this slide uh, is that that 10% is about the same uh, as the effect if C2 were a weak con argument or a redundant con argument uh, or a weak uh, con argument, um, that there's no statistically significant difference between that 10 and that 7, 8, uh, or 9. And interestingly, International law is even more potent than a strong con argument that cutting off trade with Burma would cause uh, China to retaliate against the United States. So this uh, slide provides uh, fairly strong evidence, I think, that international law is having an effect and that that effect is not simply due, or an artifact in the experiment, to the number, the balance of pro and con arguments. Yes? It's a between-subject experiment. So if, say, 70% of people opposed, uh, cutting off opposed cutting off or favored cutting off trade with Burma in one condition and 80% uh, favored it in the other, that's the, where the 10% would come from. It's by comparing the proportion of people who thought it would be a good idea or a bad idea in the control group to that proportion in the treatment group. It's a 10 percentage point change. Okay. Um, a different way, as I mentioned before, that one could go about this type of a study would be instead of a setting up a, with a between-subject between design to look at a within-subject uh, design. Um, so for these, these are not my own experiments, but this is my effort to troll through uh, several decades' worth of public opinion data and see if I can find something that approximated a within-subject experiment. Uh, the best example that I could find uh, was a set of uh, questions uh, taken in the 1980s, 90s, up to 2001, uh, about missile defense. Uh, in these types of studies, people were first asked, uh, do you favor or oppose the United States continuing to try to build a missile defense system against uh, nuclear attack? And this particular study that's listed here was administered by telephone to a sample of 1,105 U.S. adults in 2001. 61% of respondents originally favored uh, continuing to build a missile system against nuclear attack. They were then prompted within the study, what if the United States would have to break uh, the arms control treaty that we now have with Russia in order to pursue this policy? Um, and the table on the screen shows what percentage of that, what fraction of that 61% would still favor going ahead with the missile defense system versus what uh, percentage of those people's uh, minds would change about this policy. So 49% of respondents still thought um, in spite of the fact that we would have to break a treaty with Russia, that we st should go ahead with a missile defense system. But 41% of respondents changed their minds and felt that in light of this new information, they would now oppose uh, a policy of going forward with missile defense. Um, and 9% uh, of the people who had originally thought it was a good idea were then put on the fence saying that in light of this information about international law, now they're not sure whether we should uh, build a missile defense system or not. 
So this is within subject evidence that corroborates the between subject test in showing that international law can have a significant effect on people's foreign policy preferences. Here's one other example uh, that I found. This is from a, a study that was conducted in 1988 about drug interdiction. Uh, the sample was asked, would you favor sending undercover U.S. military force uh, to destroy the crops and production facilities in the countries where illegal drugs are produced? Uh, 42% originally thought that would be a good idea. Um, <laughs> and um, then when they were treated by saying, would you still favor this action if many countries considered it a violation of international law, 35% uh, changed their mind, saying that no, then they, in those conditions they would oppose it. And 13% were put on the fence saying that they would now be unsure about whether we should uh, uh, send undercover forces to um, countries where, that are producing illegal drugs. Yes? So that's 35% that's right. Yeah. All right. Um, so that's some evidence that shows both uh, in between subject and a within subject design that international law can change the foreign policy preferences of people to a significant degree. Um, what effect does international law have on people's beliefs, have their expectations about the way that other countries will behave uh, in international relations? I have a set of experiments that addresses that question as well. Um, so this experiment uh, that I'm about to describe involves uh, nuclear proliferation. Uh, the, and this experiment was, uh, was administered to a sample of policymakers rather than to voters. Uh, the policymakers were members of the British House of Commons. Uh, they were essentially given an intelligence report. They were told about a country that might or might not have been developing nuclear weapons. Uh, they, then they were given an assortment of information to help them judge how likely or unlikely it was that the country was actually pursuing nuclear weapons. Uh, so they were told about the country's regional security situation, uh, what it had said publicly about its intentions regarding the development of nuclear weapons, what satellite images suggested uh, about the possible enrichment of uranium in that country, uh, the economic conditions of the country, and the key to this experiment was whether the country was or was not uh, a member of the much maligned nuclear nonproliferation treaty. Having given them this intelligence report, we asked the members of parliament how likely they thought it was that this, a country with this profile uh, would be pursuing nuclear weapons. Uh, as I said, this was administered to um, uh, a sample of uh, MPs uh, from the House of Commons. Uh, my research group went to London to interview 75 members of the House of Commons in summer 2006. This table on the screen shows that uh, our sample was fairly representative of the House of Commons as a whole. So the first common first uh, column here gives the demographic attributes of the House of Commons, and the second column shows uh, the attributes of our sample and some of those same characteristics. So there are 50, at the time of the study, 55% uh, of members of the House of Commons were members of the Labor Party uh, versus 51% in our sample, or 31% conservatives in the House of Commons and 33% in our sample. Uh, the number of years of experience in our sample were about the same as in the House of Commons as a whole. Uh, we had a slightly, uh, slight overrepresentation of males in our sample and slight overrepresentation of MPs uh, with a stated interest or history of committee service in the area of foreign affairs. Uh, but that actually turns out to be a virtue uh, for this study since we're interested in talking with MPs uh, who think about, are interested in, and make decisions about foreign policy. All right, what do we find from this particular study? Uh, we find... Um, fairly strong evidence that these international agreements not only change policy preferences, but are also altering expectations about the way that other countries behave in international relations. Um, the numbers on the screen show the percentage of MPs who thought it likely that the country was developing nuclear weapons. So when they were told that a country was not a signatory to the NPT, um, other factors equal, 61% of MPs 
thought it likely that the country was developing nuclear weapons. Uh, compare that with only 35% when they were told that, uh, assigned to the uh, treatment group in which the country had signed the NPT. So the difference between those two values of about 25 percentage point is the absolute effect of the treaty on policy expectations. So it led to a 25 percentage point swing in expectations uh, about uh, the likelihood that this country would be developing nuclear weapons. Uh, the relative risk here of 1.8 uh, means that uh, beliefs about the likelihood of developing nuclear weapons, that uh, people thought it was 1.8 times more likely that the country was developing nuclear weapons when it had not signed the NPT than when it had signed the NPT. Uh, moreover, in open-ended discussions with these MPs, after uh, presenting them with this intelligence report, um, many MPs cited the NPT as an important indication of the country's intentions. And yet, um, just as in the studies I mentioned before about policy preferences, uh, there is a caveat that for many policymakers, this NPT had uh, little effect. So 35% of MPs thought the country was pursuing nuclear weapons even though it had signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. And several MPs stressed, without any prompting from us, that the piece of information we gave them in the intelligence report about uh, the NPT uh, was irrelevant to them because the NPT had no effect in international relations. Um, so these experiments, like the ones that I presented before about policy preferences, show both the power and the limits of international law. All right. Um, I think what I've established to this point is, at least with this uh, experimental data, that. Uh, international law, the treaties, are having an effect um, on preferences and expectations. An open question, and one for which I have some evidence but not a definitive answer at the moment, is what are the mechanisms uh, by which treaties are, uh, are having this impact? And there are at least two possibilities that I've been investigating. Uh, one is what I call the publicity mechanism. So uh, treaties uh, typically are public commitments in international relations. Um, it is possible, but very uh, uncommon, for countries to sign a treaty privately. Um, publicity, perhaps, the, perhaps treaty commitments are credible because uh, by virtue of their being public, uh, it becomes evident to all parties in international relations uh, what the country is pledged to do and thereby increases the reputational cost of reneging on that commitment. So it could be a pure publicity effect. Uh, it might uh, instead be a legalization uh, effect. We know that treaties are not simply public commitments, but also legal commitments. Uh, legalization could, uh, have an, uh, could increase reputational costs for at least two reasons. One is that if a country signs a legal commitment and then breaks it, that might, not only, that might call into, uh, into question the country's commitment not only in the issue area that, where it had signed, but also in a number of other issue areas where there are legal commitments. Uh, alternatively, uh, it's been argued that in international relations, treaties are at least conventionally taken as an especially solemn form of promise. So that if a country signs a treaty, it's like saying that they, uh, they are wanting to stake their reputation uh, on this particular issue. Uh, and that, too, is a way in which legality could increase the reputational cost of reneging on the commitment. Um, alongside that, there's the possibility that at least for some types of treaties, uh, that uh, signing an agreement into international law might empower domestic courts to enforce the agreement, and that could be the reason why these commitments are credible. Of course, there's also uh, the alternative possibility that there's nothing special about treaties, that treaties aren't different from other types of commitments in international relations, that a private commitment or a public commitment that didn't take a legal form uh, would, would be just as consequential in terms of increasing the credibility of commitments. So we want to identify whether it's just the fact that treaties are commitments 
or if instead the treaties are special in the sense that they're public and they're legal. Uh, to get some evidence about these, uh, to disentangle these mechanisms, the publicity mechanism and the legalization mechanism, I administered to the British MPs uh, a series of scenarios. Uh, one a scenario was designed to uh, estimate pure publicity effects. So they were told about a country that delivered a threat uh, in a private meeting with a foreign president and were asked to contrast that with the situation in which a country delivered a threat in a public speech at the United Nations and then were asked in that context, which country was more likely to follow through on its commitment? Uh, to the degree that there's any difference between those two, that would be evidence that publicity increases the credibility of the commitment. Uh, to isolate the effects of the law, we want to hold publicity constant and then contrast legal versus non-legal commitments. Uh, so they were told that at an international summit, two countries publicly promised to defend their allies. One announced its intention orally, the other signed a treaty, which was more likely to defend its ally. Again, both of these commitments are public, but one is legal and one is not. If there's any difference in credibility between those two uh, types of commitments, and that would be evidence that, that the law is adding credibility above and beyond a, a simple publicity effect. All right, so what do we find in this study? Um, this table on the screen shows the percentage of MPs that gave this configuration of answers to each of these two questions about publicity and about legalization holding publicity constant. Um, and the evidence very clearly shows that both publicity and legality are adding to credibility. The key takeaway from this table is that almost all the cases are in the lower triangle of this matrix here. 39% uh, of uh, MPs thought that both publicity and legalization independently increased the credibility of a commitment. An additional 21% thought that legalization increased credibility, whereas publicity had no effect. And an additional 15% thought that legalization added no value, but that publicity uh, contributed to credibility. In contrast, there are very few cases in the, uh, in the, in the remaining triangle of this matrix. Uh, so this provides very clear evidence that both mechanisms are at work in enhancing the credibility of, of commitments. That still, I think, leaves open the question, well, why is it that legality in particular is, uh, is having some force? Is it because of reputation? Is it because of domestic courts? Or is it for some other uh, mechanism? Um, to get at whether the law raises the reputational cost of reneging, um, MPs were asked in, this, in a study, actually, that's ongoing right now. So I have, very, I have just a little bit of data to, uh, to present to you now. This study was just fielded this week. Um, but um, they were told, uh, some people say that if a country breaks an international commitment, its reputation might suffer. Foreign leaders might become more skeptical of the country's willingness to keep its commitments in the future. Which statement comes closest to your view about how the two types of actions, they're asked to think about legal commitments and uh, non-legal commitments that were public, breaking a written treaty versus breaking an oral promise would affect a country's international reputation. The choices that are given to the MPs were that breaking a written treaty would be more harmful to the country's reputation, Breaking an oral promise would be more harmful to the country's reputation. Both actions would be equally harmful to the country's reputation, or neither action would be harmful to the country's reputation. So uh, to the extent that they choose this first answer here, breaking a written treaty would be more harmful to the country's reputation, we would have evidence that treaties increase the reputational cost of reneging. And indeed, with the nine people who have just responded in the, uh, <laughs> in the, in the, in the past three days uh, so far, uh, you find, uh, this is administered to a very small sample of the, uh, of the parliament as, as a test. So we have sent this uh, study out to 80 people, and so far, far nine have responded. Uh, we find that of those nine, 78% uh, answered that breaking a written treaty would be more harmful to the country's reputation. 
22% answered that, the, which is two, uh, would, uh, that both of these would be equally harmful to the country's reputation. Uh, no one felt that breaking an oral promise would be more harmful to the country's reputation, and no one answered that neither would be harmful to the country's reputation. So admittedly, this is a small sample, um, but so far the data seem to be trending in the direction that I had expected, uh, that treaties raise the reputational cost of reneging on an international commitment. Uh, what about empowering domestic courts? This is the last piece of evidence that I want to present here. So this was actually uh, included in the first study with British MPs. Um, they were asked uh, whether uh, a country with a strong domestic legal, having a strong domestic legal system would enhance the likelihood that a country would keep its international legal commitments. Uh, if, the domestic, uh, the if domestic courts weren't at play in helping to enforce these uh, uh, agreements, then we might expect that they would answer no effect. Uh, instead, 55% of the MPs, uh, of the 71 in total who answered this uh, question in the, our, our initial study, claimed that a country with, um, that having a strong domestic legal system would greatly increase the credibility of the commitment. 25% said that it would increase it somewhat, and another 10% said that it would increase it slightly. So only 10% thought that this uh, domestic legal system would be of no consequence for the likelihood that the country would honor its international uh, legal commitments. So that, too, is evidence that uh, the domestic court system uh, can contribute to the credibility of uh, international treaty commitments. Yes? Well, they don't agree, but there's not a statistically significant difference with a sample of, uh, of, 70, of 71. And could ask the same question about the, um, the way they thought about the experiment involving the NPT. You know, more, did they have different judgments about the likelihood that a country would or would not be developing nuclear weapons? I find that there are not statistically significant differences across, across party. Um, but of course, you'd need a larger sample to know for sure. Yes? Well, I welcome your suggestions about a way to get at it implicitly, but it's not obvious that why there would be a social desirability bias. There were, uh, this study also included other types of um, implicate, you know, it asked about other possible consequences of breaking a treaty, like whether that would be more likely to bring international sanction upon the country, how it might change domestic public opinion. And you could hypothesize that the same social, if there is a social desirability bias, that it would pervade all of those types of mechanisms and not just the reputational mechanism. But um, for the other mechanisms, uh, MPs were willing to say that it would, neither would be likely to have an impact or that both would be equally likely to have uh, an impact. So that's a small piece of evidence against the possibility of social desirability bias. Yes? Uh, the last slide. This one? Well, 
I can't with this with the data that I have at the moment. I cannot rule out that possibility. Uh, so you're right. This is indirect. This is indirect evidence, which is either consistent with what you just said, or consistent with the idea that a strong domestic legal system is enforcing these international commitments. And um, you're right that with this particular uh, question, it is possible that they think that countries with a strong domestic legal system are, in principle, committed to enforcing the law, whether uh, their domestic courts are responsible for. Um, enforcing those treaty commitments or not. We need a follow-up study to uh, get at that in a little bit more detail. Did you prime this group by giving them examples of particular kinds of treaties that you were thinking about, or they're They were being asked in general about this question. Um, they, of course, they got asked earlier in the study about the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. So that was a specific treaty that was mentioned to them. But uh, in this case here, they were just asked for their in, to make a general statement about the relationship between the strength of a domestic legal system and the likelihood of abiding by international law. I asked only because that's a good example of a treaty that would not be perfect. Right. Okay. Um, so let me just. Oh, yes. Uh, I, I haven't checked that, actually, but... Oh, no, actually, I did. Yeah, there, no, there, I, I couldn't find a statistically significant difference uh, based on level of experience. Um, but again, one might be able to detect one with a larger, with a larger sample. Because I would assume that there would be a difference. What, but what would be your hypothesis about the difference? That the experienced ones would feel international law to be more consequential or less consequential? No, no, I think there would be a difference, but I do not know that. In which direction it would be. Uh -huh. Okay. Um, okay, so uh, let me just wrap up by saying what I uh, am planning for the next steps in this uh, piece of this research agenda and then uh, uh, some conclusions. So, um, of course, I want to uh, run a series of uh, new experiments, um, not only in which I probe more deeply at the mechanisms that I just described a minute ago, uh, but also in which I see whether the effect varies by treaty or by issue uh, and by international context. Uh, these kind, this kind of method is also useful for studying the effects of institutional design. So there is a, a large literature in international relations uh, that's developed hypotheses about how the design of an international institution uh, would affect the way that countries behave. Uh, we can, through experiments, manipulate the design of these treaties and other institutions and then see uh, whether they have a discernible effect on policy preferences or expectations. Uh, I also want to run experiments, uh, more experiments with elite samples, not just with voters. And that's why I say here that I would welcome your elite Rolodex to the extent that you uh, have one. So it's not easy to make these contacts with the elite policymakers. Um, I'm also, because I tend to be a methodological pluralist, I'm um, not only uh, doing these experiments, but I'm also engaged in a series of observational studies, more like uh, my earlier work. Uh, one observational study involves the effect of treaties that do nothing more than uh, codify the status quo, that write down in international law a policy that's already on the books. These kinds of treaties are useful because they help identify or isolate the effect of international law. Um, so, for example, uh, in the period before World War II, um, Many countries had a blanket policy of giving most favored nation uh, treatment uh, status to all of their uh, trading partners. 
and yet they had bilateral MFN treaties with some countries but not with other countries. So by observing uh, differences, if any, in trade policies or trade flows in dyads where, the, uh, where that commitment to MFN was legalized versus not, we can help to isolate the effect of international law. The same could be done in a non-dyadic way by looking at, say, countries that signed on to international human rights treaties when they were already in compliance with those treaties. Those two then would be treaties that would do nothing more than codify the status quo. Um, and finally, I'm working on an observational study about uh, reputational spillovers in international relations, uh, which uh, involves building a new data set about expropriation of foreign direct investment in the 20th century and asking how acts of expropriation affect a country's creditworthiness in international capital markets uh, or vice versa. So how does breaking of a legal commitment in one area of international relations influence its credibility in other areas of international relations? All right, so this is my last slide. Um, I think a substantive conclusion from this research is that I'm finding uh, fairly strong evidence that legalization contributes to uh, credibility. This evidence comes from studies with both voters and policymakers in a wide range of contexts involving not only uh, international political economy issues, but also international security issues. And some evidence uh, that the effects are partly due uh, to a reputational mechanism, which connects with some of my earlier work. Um, the methodological takeaway from this uh, project, I think, is that uh, experiments can be uh, a useful and underutilized way of uh, doing international relations research. It can help us to expand the range of questions that we're able to answer by getting around the kinds of endogeneity problems that I mentioned before. Uh, they can help give us micro-level evidence to improve the micro-foundations of international relations theory. Uh, but I wouldn't suggest that this is the only way that we want to study these problems. And so I view them as a complement rather than a substitute for the kinds of observational work uh, that's being done by other researchers in the literature. So um, I'll stop there and turn over the floor to our discussant. Thanks very much. Okay, so uh, my comments will be short. Um, I think that's approach. Um, uh, I really enjoyed uh, reading your article. I think it's, uh, it tackles very important question in IR especially it directly engages in, you know, you, you term legalist versus um, skeptic, uh, skeptics, um, those who say institutions or in international laws are phenomenal versus in institutions or international laws does, make, um, does matter, right? So I think this is a very interesting uh, project um, and um, I really like the new method that you're trying um, trying to, you know, install here. Uh, that said, I think I, we are all aware the virtues of your paper, and I'll turn to the questions that I had, especially reading your um, papers. Uh, so first of all, uh, you report that from the U.S. survey, uh, one of the major implications was that international law changes, transforms, changes uh, <laughs> <laughs> preferences and ex uh, expectations, right? Um, and I'm pretty convinced that Yes, it, it exists, right? Uh, but the, I think the more important or interesting question is how much, um, how much it matters, right? Especially, uh, you report that it's, um, the, the effect of international uh, law was additive, not uh, absolute, right? So I think um, we all know that from our regression class, statistical significance, two stars, three stars, doesn't matter if it's substantively uh, matter uh, marginally, so um, uh, it will be very interesting to see um, if the same thing holds for 
more high-profile cases like you know sanctioning. What if um, your um, case involves sanctioning North Korea or um, um, Iran, right? Um, so, and even in those cases, doesn't matter. Or what if um, international laws and um, individual economic welfares collide, right? So, I think that will be interesting to see. In interesting to see um, how much it, it really matters, especially it, uh, it's a high-profile cases. Uh, second, uh, about your uh, mechanisms, I don't think you elaborated about the publicity mechanisms, but it was in, in your paper. Um, I had some comments. Um, there are many potential mechanisms that you highlight, and you highlighted publicities and um, legalizations. Um, I guess uh, skeptics may argue that how much publicity, publicity really matters if uh, you, you report that there are uh, more than 50,000 treaties in the world, and then you know 95% of them we, we are unaware of, right? So um, how much really publicity works there, right? Especially when we are not aware of those treaties. Um, related about another causal mechanisms, um, I think the most obvious one causal mechanism that I can think of is enforcement mechanism, and uh, especially for those high-profile cases. In your in your case, it's free trade agreement and um, NPT, right? So I think maybe it's it's not so much of publicity or legalization, but you know the enforcement behind those uh, those treaties that really uh, causes. Um, the effect of international laws, right? So I'm not sure how you can distinguish those enforcement from um, uh, the possibility of enforcement from publicity and uh, legalization. And uh, this is a more specific uh, ones. Um, probably I'm confused or something, but you ask British uh, members of parliaments and, um, and you report that, uh, quote, when told about the country that had not signed the NPT, a sizable majority of British MPs deemed it either somewhat likely or very likely that the country was pursuing nuclear weapons, right? Um, and in contrast, only 35% um, MPs thought it, it's likely that a signatory was following the nuclear, uh, nuclear path then from, from here. So you sign, um, you are, so British MPs expect that if you, if you signed uh, NPT, they are less likely to develop nuclear weapons and um, those who actually did not sign NPT, right? But then it actually goes back to your, your endogenity problem, right? So they may really think that um, the, the baseline propensity was actually um, causing them to sign or unsign and they are actually seeing those baseline propensity rather than um, rather than the independent effect of NPT. Um, finally, I'm sure you've heard a lot about um, generalizability question or actionability question, but um, I'm not sure if it's generalizable to other areas areas of foreign policy, other um, uh, treaties, international treaties involving other countries like you know North Korea or the high-profile cases, right? Um, for instance, or uh, how about 
is it just American foreign policy? How, how much do you think it's generalizable beyond <coughs> America, right? I, I guess it's pretty exceptional case. It's America, arguably the most important case, but I think it's very exceptional also. So that's about it. Alex used to ask me two questions. Um, uh, the, your last question was about uh, what about another mechanism? Do I need to turn this back on? Or? Um, 
What about a mechanism that I didn't discuss, uh, logic of appropriateness or morality of obeying, uh, abiding by promises once those promises are made? That is a mechanism that I'm considering. I didn't present any evidence for it today, but it, it is part of this uh, study that is now in the field with the British MPs, uh, where they're uh, asked uh, to what degree they think countries have a moral uh, obligation to abide by, abide by their international commitments and whether that differs if the, treaty, if the commitment is a treaty versus the, treaty, the commitment is simply an oral promise. So far with the nine who have responded to the, to the study, there is not a difference. Um, uh, there are a number, and, um, but that doesn't mean that with a larger sample I won't find it. Many of them are dismissive of the idea that there is a moral obligation, and of those who think that there is a moral obligation, uh, as many of them think that uh, their obligation is the same for treaties, uh, many of them think that the obligation is the same for treaties versus oral commitments. Um, your other question is, what is what's special about the law? Is it simply a matter of writing it down? My intuition is that it's more than just writing it down, that there's, it's, it's writing it down in a way that's considered to be legally binding. And there are examples uh, in international relations of so-called soft uh, law where it, it, something is written down, uh, but it is alleged not to carry the same type of a force as a treaty. The experiments that I presented so far are not... Um, fine-grained enough to be able to make that uh, distinction, but a follow-up experiment would try to separate uh, a written, the effect of a written agreement that doesn't carry the force of law versus a written agreement that does carry the force of law. So I think that's an important distinction, too. Um, uh, Randy, you had asked um, two questions about um, the way that a realist might think about the uh, effects of these international uh, treaty commitments. So one point that you made is that lay people don't really understand international relations, and yet you were surprised by the uh, that the magnitude of the effect wasn't larger. Uh, well, I guess I would concede to you that probably most people don't understand uh, uh, international relations, but it's not obvious whether the bias in that case would be depressing or increasing the effect of international law. Also, I presented evidence not just with lay people, but also with uh, members of the British Parliament and found in that case that it did have a large effect, um, that international law had a, a large effect. So there's evidence not just from lay people, but also from, from policymakers. Uh, you also asked, well, you know, could the results be different if I took a commitment that was inherently incredible in the sense that the country had a very strong interest in not abiding by the commitment and then asked, could international law change uh, preferences or expectations? actually tried to do that. Uh, now, you might say that I didn't uh, pick something that was extreme enough, but in the case of Burma, for instance, I set up a situation in which both material and moral interests uh, would favor breaking the commitment, would favor cutting off trade with, with Burma, and then that was set uh, juxtaposed against a legal commitment not to cut off trade with Burma. So even when people were told that they had a material and a moral reason for doing so, international law, uh, for, for abiding by um, for, for cutting off trade with Burma, international law was still having an effect on their preferences. Um, I also presented some, uh, some experiments involving uh, military issues. So that's the NPT. That's the development of space-based weapons. And uh, the effects were fairly large uh, with those military issues as well. But we, you and I, hopefully, uh, you can chat for a second afterwards. We can brainstorm some cases in which you think a commitment is really incredible. And, uh, and then I uh, could run an experiment based on that type of a commitment and see whether international law still has an effect in that context. Okay, now to go to the set, uh, briefly to the set of, uh, of comments that you gave. First, thank you for reading the work carefully and for, uh, for uh, coming up with so many excellent uh, comments. You asked uh, something that's similar to what Randy asked about the size of the, uh, of the um, 
effect? What's the substantive effect? So I mean, a rough rule of thumb based on these experiments is that it's changing the uh, policy attitudes or uh, expectations of about 20 to 25% of people, which I think not just in international relations, but in any political science context would be a pretty large uh, effect. Uh, you also asked what would it be like in a higher profile case. So this relates, I think, maybe to, to Randy's question. Uh, but it, if what you mean by higher profile is uh, a case that's more in the news, uh, then, um, then I have some evidence of that with the Burma uh, in the follow-up uh, study. If what you mean by higher profile is higher stakes, military stakes versus economic stakes, then I would appeal to the studies involving the NPT, uh, involving uh, missile defense and, and drug interdiction as potentially having higher stakes than maybe the, the Burma example. Um, you also asked some uh, who is aware of these kinds of, of agreements. I think it's probably true that the domestic public is not aware of the 50,000 international treaties that are out there, but uh, other leaders are, the leaders who have signed it, and they're the ones who are evaluating a country's credibility uh, in international relations. And the last thing that I would say about that is that there are cases in which citizens don't, are not aware of international legal commitments, but when a country becomes inclined to violate it, then uh, interest groups and the media uh, call those legal attentions, uh, uh, legal commitments to the attention of the public. Like take the case of uh, uh, torturing of prisoners of war. Probably most Americans didn't know uh, two or three years ago that the United States was party to Geneva Conventions that would have prohibited that, uh, but it was in the news. In fact, the first experiment that I wanted to do about international law was on that topic area, and I ended up being foiled by uh, the administration because uh, you know, my concern then was uh, that if I, could, I would design a study in which there would be treatment and control, but the control group would behave like the treatment group, not because I had treated them, but because the New York Times had just treated them with information about what U.S. Uh, legal commitments uh, were. Um, uh, in the interest of time, I'll save your other uh, comments, and if we have time at the end, I'll come back to them. Yes, August. Um, so that's a great idea. I haven't actually looked at the difference between signing and ratification. I think that would be a good move to make, especially for disentangling the kind of mechanisms uh, that are at play. My own intuition is that uh, you're right, that of course the, you, it, the, an international agreement is not going to be enforceable in domestic court unless it's ratified, uh, it, a treaty that is. Um, but that doesn't mean that, there, that legalization um, doesn't create reputational effects even um, in the absence of... Um, of ratification, you know, even in the absence of uh, ratification or uh, with ratification. So uh, I think, yes, you're right in the sense that we could say that the court mechanism can only operate after the treaty is um, 
after the treaty has been ratified. But it could be that the mere signing or the making of a legal commitment not only has a publicity effect, but also has a reputation-enhancing effect in the sense that stating it as an intended legal commitment is uh, in intention of seriousness, uh, a, a, a statement of intention to be bound, and that that's conventionally taken as more serious than if a country had made the agreement in a non-legal form. But I think it's a, it's a, a great area to go to try to figure out more what mechanisms are at work. Great. I don't know the answer to that question for the, uh, for the studies on international law because I haven't run a study like the one you just described, but I think that's uh, a great idea for a follow-up study. I do have some sense of it from work that I've done on a related topic of publicity and uh, audience costs. Because uh, I ran some, so the audience cost studies look at what happens to the popularity of a leader when a leader makes a threat and then backs down as opposed to not making a threat in the first place. Is it costly to go down a path of the game tree in which you make a threat and then back down? And, and I've run a series of experiments in that area, some naming uh, the country that uh, is being threatened and some not. And I find uh, that naming the adversary does uh, not uh, change by very much the adverse domestic public reaction to making a threat and then backing down. Whether that same kind of pattern would hold in a study of international law, I don't know. I'll have to run those experiments to find out. Yes? Um, that's also a great idea for, uh, for a follow-up. I mean, I am finding very clear evidence in the within-subject experiments that people are being pushed over that tipping point, but uh, those experiments are not... Uh, I don't have enough information to know uh, how close to that uh, imaginary cut point they were prior to being treated by international law. So the kind of questions that you suggested would give me insight into that. Yes? Yeah, I find... <coughs> 
Sure. <laughs> uh, finally, I'm not sure that your experiment actually demonstrates its existence because of the wording of just one of the questions. Am I biased to results strongly in favor of punishing the leader who commits and then backs down? And that is the only answering question whereby the challenger succeeds in occupying the country. Uh, when I ask the question of the attacker getting bogged down in a costly quiet night or getting beaten up and, and uh, incurring a lot of costs, being defeated, or even with no outcome, now, I'm not saying people will um, approve escalating and backing down more, but only that will disapprove of it a lot less. And so the score is going to be indistinguishable between the never commit, which now seems brilliant, right, in retrospect to the public. Thank God we didn't go into that. We didn't have to. I mean, he went in there and got himself bloody. Uh, and the commit and back down, which now seems like a costless bluff. Okay. So um, that's a lot, obviously. Um, no, no, that, I, I appreciate it. Good. Um, all right, so again, taking your comments uh, in reverse order. I designed, an ex for those of you who haven't seen this article, I designed um, a, an experiment in which people were told, I'm going to tell you about a foreign policy problem our country has faced different times in the past. Different leaders have handled this situation in different ways. I'll describe one way a leader has handled the situation and then ask whether you approve or disapprove. And then they were told about a country that sent its military to invade a neighboring country. Um, and they were given background information about the crisis. Half the sample was told that the president uh, decided not to get militarily involved, and the other half was told that uh, the president made a threat to varying degrees, uh, but ultimately didn't follow through on that threat. And then both halves of the sample, the story ended the same way uh, for both halves of the sample. The country ended up invading its neighbor, and then both halves of the sample were asked to what degree they approved or disapproved of the way the president handled the situation. Okay, so now to get to your last comment, which is um, I look at a situation in which uh, the invading country succeeds in taking over its neighbor. Uh, 
Could the effects uh, be different if the invading country did not succeed? Uh, I'm certainly open to that possibility. That would require the rigging up and running of a different, uh, different experiment. Uh, going into it, I wouldn't have a strong prior that it, that it would change the outcome, but I'm open enough to it that I think it uh, would be a good idea uh, to pursue. You, just before that, you asked, well, about the sociology of knowledge. Why is it that there's been so much theorizing about audience costs, but no one actually bothered to, to test whether they uh, exist or not? Um, I don't think people have not tried to test whether they exist or not. They've just tried to test it in an indirect way. So the standard way that people have tried to study audience costs before my work uh, has been to take a common assumption in the international relations literature that audience costs might be higher in democracies than in non-democracies, and therefore to check for a correlation between democracy and foreign policy, a correlation of a particular type, that if threats made by, if democracies have higher audience costs, then their threat should be more credible. And therefore, when a democracy issues a threat, that threat should be reciprocated at a lower rate than if an autocracy makes a threat. So that has been the strategy that people have used to try to study audience cost. I find it suggestive, but not completely convincing, because it's, it's very indirect. And it's possible that the differences could be due to other distinctions between those regimes other than their magnitude of audience costs. So why other people haven't done these kinds of uh, experiments yet? Uh, I don't know, but I'm glad that they haven't because it gives uh, an opportunity for me to contribute uh, in this area. Yes? Oh, well, I know. I haven't gotten to all of your comments yet. I've got a, lot, I've got a whole page here. <laughs> um, okay, so then you said that there are a, a series of studies about deterrence that show, um, and, and you, you, the way you characterize those studies as showing that you say that lots of people have shown um, that audience costs have no fact. I think, and hopefully we can talk about this afterwards, my interpretation of those studies is that what they're finding is that there's not much evidence that the way a country behaved in a previous crisis affects expectations about its credibility in the current crisis, which I take to be different from saying that there are no audience costs. What, what that's saying is that there might not be any reputational costs uh, that carry over from one crisis to another. Now, I have an entire book about reputation in a different area of international relations, uh, about international finance, where I find very powerful uh, reputational effects. So it's an interesting and unresolved puzzle why there might be reputational effects in some areas of international relations and not others. And in the conclusion of my book, I have some conjectures about how one might uh, go about the study of reputation and deterrence differently than the way it's been done up till now uh, to see if we might find stronger evidence uh, of deterrence. But I guess my bottom line here is, it's one thing to say that those studies don't find evidence of reputational effects. It's another to say that they don't find evidence about audience cost. I think I would agree with your first that characterization that it, they don't find evidence of reputation, but doesn't follow that they're not finding any evidence um, about audience costs. The last thing you or the first thing that you asked is whether decision makers even care about this and whether they base their opinions on it. Uh, that's a hard thing to to get at. I have some pieces of evidence that are suggestive in the MP um, in the interviews with MPs. Uh, I asked MPs, um, I ran the same experiment involving audience cost with MPs that I ran with, uh, uh, with citizens, except that I asked the MPs not only whether they would approve or disapprove of the way the prime minister handled the situation, but also um, whether they thought that the public would approve or disapprove of the way the, uh, the prime minister handled the situation, and found very powerful evidence that MPs expect the public to disapprove. 
Now, that, there's one more step in that, right, which is whether they uh, then take that expectation of disapproval and formulate their policies based on that. I don't have any direct evidence for that. For that, I'd have to appeal to the other literature in international relations, which shows that um, leaders are sensitive to public approval on issues of foreign policy. But whether they would take it into account in all foreign policy confrontations, that seems un un unlikely. Um, if you have some suggestions about more direct ways that we can get at it, I'd love to, to hear it, because I recognize that that's an important consideration. OK. Yeah, Alex. Um, OK, I guess, uh, well, first, I'd like to apologize for my graduate students that I've never used the phrase, my research team went to London. <laughs> <laughs> But then, the, right, then the question is, uh, would the leader or subsequent leaders who might have different preferences be bound by the action of having entered into that treaty? And I'm finding evidence that uh, voters, for example, uh, would object more to breaking off um, trade with, with Burma. Uh, in the presence of a legal commitment than in a non-legal commitment. So you're right. There, it doesn't completely solve the endogeneity problem for the reason that you just articulated. But it is direct evidence that it can be constraining. I guess what I'm saying is, let's say you could show subsequently that public opinion does constrain leaders. Right? So you're showing that public concerns about international law influence leaders to obey international law. right? Yes. But that law is law that those... That, that they chose that for themselves. Chose. That's right. Well, yeah, the way to do it would be in an experiment to vary how old the treaty was or under what political administration the treaty was signed. Um, yeah. In the back? Bill, even though it is against international law, but it will mean tax break for everybody. 
it will be increased in decrease in unemployment. Something that they really care, so something that really hits home. Mm -hmm. I think, you, I, I don't know, I, I'm, I don't know what your results are, but I think there will be like some effect on this. It's a great base and see that the effect is very tangible and, and affect their livelihood. And then secondly is, you know, is I'm wondering how if you try to replicate this kind of experiment in countries where they don't really have strong legal system, where, you know, where basically people don't, don't trust the leaders <coughs> and then the leaders are pretty much like maybe like a dryer where they just hog up the entire country dry. So I mean, so basically the legal system is open. Whether they will have the same respect, international law, like in the United States or in Great Britain, or will they be just saying, oh, you know, we don't give a damn, you know, it can keep it open anyway. Okay, so that's a, uh, that's a good idea to try to replicate this experiment in other countries. I mean, I have some evidence from the UK, but uh, it would be nice from a standpoint of science uh, to do it in another country. And also, then I could say to my, I could say I took my research team to Zaire, uh, <laughs> uh, as as well as to London. So I could try to uh, to do it in the kind of countries that you suggested, where maybe the rule of law is not as, as strong. Um, regarding the effects on the pocketbook, I did try to rig up a situation in which people would have an economic incentive to break international law. Now, you might feel that the treatment wasn't strong enough and that I should pick another trading partner or a more serious uh, economic issue uh, and then see whether the effect of international law is still detectable in those cases. But that would be going back to the question that Marcus was asking before. Those would be situations when the you would be moving people's, uh, moving more more people away from the cut point, so that international law would be less likely to uh, tip them from one side to the other. But yes, I think that's worthwhile to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Would you uh, comment a little bit more on two objections you sort of mentioned in passing early on? Uh, one is that although uh, a lot of people would agree that uh, it increases the cost by such a treaty, that in, in most cases uh, people will simply abrogate it when the interest uh, gets high enough. Right. Um, on your last question, I have a little bit of evidence about this. Let's see here. Um, so I um, discussed this within subject, um, these within subject experiments involving the missile defense system. Um, it turns out that the language that was used in these studies differed from one survey to the next about whether you would have to break a treaty, whether you could withdraw from a treaty, abandon a treaty, violate a treaty. And the effect, surprisingly, was fairly similar, uh, whether people were told break, violate or withdraw, violate or abandon, violate uh, a, a treaty. Um, so, I mean, I had anticipated what, uh, what I think you were suggesting, which is that maybe the effect would be smaller if the people were asked, uh, how would you feel about this if we had to withdraw from a treaty? Um, is there a question that says withdraw legally from the treaty as opposed to violate it legally? It doesn't say withdraw legally. It says whether we ha uh, withdraw from the treaty. But I, so a, str a, a, stronger, a, a stronger way of stating that would be to legally withdraw from the treaty. And uh, yeah, that would be, I have, I have not seen, 
any survey that's used that kind of language before, and I haven't used it in an experiment, but that would be a very strong test of... Yes. Okay. Um, and it's, uh, the, your, your first comment was about the substantive effect. I mean, I can only um, go back to the comments that I was uh, making before. Yes, you are right that many people would be willing to abrogate the treaty anyway, but apparently not about 20% uh, of voters are policymakers. So that's still a large effect, even though for, for many others, in, in the case of the Burma, for a majority of the American, a slight majority of the American population, they'd be willing. Are you asking whether people pay attention to public so opinion? Decision makers are constrained, essentially. Right. Significantly. They obviously will bit because the costs are higher. But is it enough to be very consequential and affect real people? I mean, that'd be the real argument, right? That it basically just sort of walk over this if their interests are Yeah, well, I'm finding evidence that they're unwilling to do so. And, 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 will, and also evidence that policymakers don't expect other policymakers to do so. Otherwise, how could one explain the effect of the NPT, for example, on changing the policy expectations of 25% of the British Parliament? Right, so it must be that leaders expect international law to be consequential. Um, Yes. That's correct. Well, but there are a lot of states that sign the NPT that have no incentive whatsoever to build nuclear weapons. I mean, like most of them don't, right? Right. So I don't understand why. Well, they were given other background information about the country that was to help put the to scenario in context. Like its regional security situation created an incentive for the country to want nuclear weapons. Um, satellite images showed evidence about the enrich that showed evidence of the enrichment of uranium. So they were given a set of uh, in pieces of information in the intelligence report to increase the ex ante probability that they would think the country was developing nuclear weapons. Well, I guess we disagree about the characterization of the literature. There's, there are a lot of people who are arguing that it, it has no effect. I say it only matters when the commitment is an 
inherently incredible to, to make, right? But inherently incredible means that you have some incentive not to do it. And I rigged up all these cases in which you had an incentive to break the commitment. And yet they weren't willing to break it. <laughs> So afterwards, let's come up with a scenario that would satisfy you, and then I'll run it as an experiment, and we'll see whether international law has an effect. I don't. <laughs> Completion here. So let's uh, thank my Thanks. Well, continue the conversation. Throw stones with the reception outside. To which everyone is invited. Hi, I'm Ted Huff. Nice to meet you, Ted. Nice to meet you, Mike. Thanks for all of your questions.